and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the book of Genesis. The series is called Christianity in the Book of Genesis. A happy new year to you, by the way, if you're kind of tracking along. This is the first one of the year 2022, so there you have it. Um, Chapter 14 is on the docket today. Last time, you'll probably remember Abram and Lot separated. Lot sees a land that looks like the Garden of Eden, like the Garden of God, and he goes for it. And Abe, meanwhile, goes after a place that just doesn't, look at all like what he was promised, and yet in the midst of it, the Lord, at the end of chapter 13, promises him, hey, I've got wonderful blessings in store for you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're waiting for this promised seed to come. He's going to have so many descendants, has the stars of the heavens, and so on. This is a big deal. The eyes, what do the eyes see and and not see, and then how does that relate to the faith? We walk by faith and not by sight. I think we brought that up. And uh, here we're going to hear Lot uh, gets captured here in chapter 14. Lot is in a kind of a tough go here. Chapter 14 starts out very obscurely. We have a bunch of kings. You can kind of see that as you just kind of just take a glance there. We have all sorts of kings all over the place in the region of what is basically the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. We've got kings of a bunch of places that are hard to pronounce. And we have a rebellion of kings against other kings. Basically, it's going to be four on five. And I, you know, it's it's a fascinating thing. The Bible kind of gives you what it gives you, and it doesn't when it doesn't. Um, we don't know much about any of these kings. What uh, what were their tenures? What, what did they do? Um... You know, where are these places? Some of these places hard to kind of pin pinpoint. Now, why is that? Think about, I mean, I do this with my students all the time, but what effect does that have on a reader to not give you the kind of historical information that you would expect or that you would desire? And I think the point here as you get into chapter 14 is these are the biggest and the baddest. That's the point. We're not going to go into a bunch of historical um, detail, get bogged down at this many years and this many. The point is that these are the, this is abrupt, isn't it? We have no intro really to any of this. Again, we ended with Abram and Lot separating. All of a sudden we have all these kings as if we we maybe know who they are or it's just jarring. And I think that's that's the point. The point is that these are the biggest and the baddest kings, rulers, authorities of the world at this time. And this encompasses as bad as it gets with uh, the authorities up against God's church at any time. And it's the same thing as Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. Now tell me more in Psalm 2. Tell me more about who those kings are. No, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what they do. That's exactly what's happening here, is that in chapter 14, you get a picture of the kings, the rulers of this world, 
fighting and having an effect on God's people, namely Lot, who is captured in the midst of this. As the rulers of this world duke it out and fight for power and cash and glory and whatever else, God's people are, what, at times vulnerable to this, can be captured by this. Lot, by the time you get through all the, okay, all the kings, and then there's a rebellion, there's five kings against four. You see that in verse 9. Uh, the val- I'll pick up here with verse 10. The valley of Sidim, full of bitumen pits. Now remember, bitumen was mentioned for the Tower of Babel back in chapter 11. So these are the biggest and the baddest, this technologically speaking, Financially speaking, uh, authoritatively speaking, these are the biggest and the baddest of the of the world. Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll hear about that later on. So they take possessions, and then they also took Lot, in verse 12, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. We heard about this, the, the place that he chose, right? It looked like the Garden of God. Who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Okay, so here's the situation. One of God's people. Now, Lot himself was grafted into this situation, right? Abram was the one with the promise, but Lot tags along. He gets in on it. And now uh, it's like, uh, I don't know, the parable of the sower. The roots aren't that deep. He gets caught up into this business of worldly fighting worldly struggle for power and authority. He gets caught up in this. Lot himself is graciously grafted in, and yet he gets caught up in this. He's kind of a vulnerable person or situation here. He gets caught up in this, and yet the Lord's mercy endures forever. It was He was merciful and gracious to Lot in the first place to kind of graft him into this church. And at the same time here, he's captured, and yet what happens? He's gracious, the Lord is gracious and merciful again. One who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, this, by the way, is the first time we get this business of Hebrew, which Ivri in the Hebrew, the word uh, Ivri, um, the root might have something to do with Passover. I kind of like that because... Boy, you know, Exodus, God's people known and referred to the nomenclature of passing over. What's definitive about who you are? We are a passing over people. We've, we're an Exodus people, a crossing through the, the Egypts and the Red Seas kind of people, a take up your cross and follow me kind of people, a uh, theology of the cross kind of people. I like that. Um, Ivri this Hebrew who was living by the Oaks of Mamre. Again, why he's just hanging out by this, this well-known trees, this uh, Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and honor. There's already, this reminds me of David when he's kicked out by Absalom. He has these foreigners that he's, that's hanging around with. Abe's just grafting in these, these other nations early on. As soon as he gets the promise, there are others that just, why are they hanging out with him? Um, and yet here they are, and they're going to fight for him. And he wants them at the end of the chapter to to get their fair their fair shake. The labor deserves his wages, and so Abe just he's grafted in the church from the get go. And like David, he has this you know um, uh, this kind of following of of other nations from the get go. God grafting in, God being true to his promise to Abe. 
immediately. He's already getting a foretaste of this. In you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Uh, so Abe hears about this. His kinsmen had been taken captive. Notice it's not just Lot, but Lot here stands for a people to the Lord. His kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his trained men, born in his house. Luther's big here on, these are peeps who have been catechized. They've been taught and confirmed in the faith. They know about the promise through Abe. They know about Lot's relationship to Abe. They know what it's like to be one of God's people, to live in this sinful world. 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces by them by night, against them by night. He and his servants defeated them, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions. He also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. We learn that it's not just Lot, but Lot stands for a whole group of God's people grafted into the fellowship of his saints. Abe defeats them. This is a fascinating thing. I mean, you get some of these paintings. I have in my office this painting of Abe. He's a burly-looking dude. Chapter 12, we're told he's 75 years old, and it's he is a... He is a burly-looking dude, and he captures—I mean, this is the thing about God's people. The biggest and the baddest that this world has to offer, God's people will be victorious. Now, it might not always look that way. Lot is captured, and a bunch of people as well. Now, how long will they be captured? And how bad was it to be captured? And what did this capturing entail and so on? We're not told any of that, but fill in the blank, right? But no matter how bad it is, God's people will triumph. And you get a sense of that victory here. Even with the small group, it's kind of like Gideon is, and he's got his 300 men, you know. Um, why are we told that number? 318, very specific, isn't it? Um, we have this, I mean, it's it's a small number. And just like David and Goliath and uh, Gideon and so on, God doing working through the few to accomplish this this huge victory. This is the deal of God's church, Christianity in Genesis. This is the story of how it works. A little remnant is preserved and doesn't look much in the eyes of the world. In fact, even falls prey to the world's ways. And yet, they will be victorious. That one little tiny remnant of a church will endure until the second coming of Christ, they will be victorious. And they will not only triumph, they will be blessed even more so on the other side. Notice at the end of verse 16, they brought back you know Lot and the women and the people and all the possessions, and Lot with his possessions, the stuff. Again, this is the theme of the Bible early in Genesis. The trial, the suffering, the hardship, and yet you're coming out on the other side even greater you're getting in Christ even more than what you what you lost in the fall into sin into into this exodus into this the worldly fighting and raging and plotting. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the Christian faith. And you get a nice little picture of that here in Genesis 14. Now, just when you thought it couldn't get any better. Then we have our friend Melchizedek, much more than just a friend here. I'll say more about that soon, but I'm looking at the time. Probably good for a break right here. Stay tuned. 
We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 14. Again, very jarring. We have kings all over the place. They're fighting. There's rebellion and lots taken up in the midst of this. It's kind of a fascinating little picture, I think, of life in the church, the remnant that that prevails and is victorious even against the biggest and baddest that that you see out there. That's sort of a, I mean, a nice little chapter unto itself, wouldn't you say? After his return, though, this is verse 17 and following. Maybe you've heard of this before. This is big in the in the letter to the Hebrews and the New Testament, this business of Melchizedek, kind of a big deal. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now, we don't know exactly where this is, probably somewhere near Jerusalem, apparently. King's Valley is mentioned somewhere else, um, probably near Jerusalem, okay? So we have the king of Sodom, we're going to talk about him real soon here, but we have all this defeat. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him, okay? And then, then we have another king, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, where was Salem and all this? Where is Melchizedek and all this? So we have, basically we have two different kings now. Abe is victorious. Lot's rescued. They have the possessions. We have two different kings. Uh, we're in the valley here. King of Sodom, and of course Sodom, my goodness, you know, later on we're going to talk about that. But King of Sodom, and then we have this uh, who's so far unmentioned until now, thus far, uh, Melchizedek, King of Salem. Now, Salem, where is that? Well, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, probably old school Jerusalem. So we're in this valley, probably right outside Jerusalem, king of Salem and king of Sodom. Melchizedek, out of nowhere, Melchizedek, whose name means uh, king of righteousness. Okay, so we have this king of righteousness, who's king in Jerusalem, 
brings out bread and wine. Uh Uh-oh, I mean, does this sound familiar? He was priest of God Most High. So now all of a sudden we have this king who is labeled as a priest, which is just this, it just doesn't make any sense, right? We have this, I mean, you're not supposed to cross these wires. Um, Uzziah wants to burn incense. He's a king and he wants to be priestly. And all the prophets are like, ah, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not for you. It's for the priest. He ends up turning to like he's a leper. Because of it. Don't cross those wires. The stuff for the kings are for the kings. The stuff for the priests are for the priests. And yet here, early on in the Bible, without any other kind of introduction, you have this Melchizedek coming out of nowhere. Who, by the way, everybody gets a genealogy, don't they? No genealogy. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Jerusalem, bringing out bread and wine. He's a priest. Blesses. I mean, who blesses? God blesses, right? But blesses, okay, he's a priest, so stands in the stead and by the command of God, I suppose. Blesses, Abraham says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So here's this blessing. It's a twofold thing. Blessed be Abe and blessed be God. Melchizedek stands right in between as a kind of mediator between God and man. King of righteousness, king of Salem, bread and wine, priest, blessing and mediating between God and man. Abe gives him a tenth of everything. Now, what is this? This is like, are we in the temple all of a sudden? I mean, your tithes and your contributions, that goes to God's house, and yet here it goes to Melchizedek. You might say this kind of temple in the flesh, appearing out of nowhere. Abe gives him a tenth of everything. Abe is on top of the world, by the way. Just defeated the most powerful of the world, and yet he gives him a tenth of everything. Now the king of Sodom has a little uh, speech here. In verse 21, give me the persons, literally in the Hebrew, give me the souls, but take the goods for yourself. Now, this is a fascinating little request, isn't it? Give me the souls, but take the goods for yourself. Now, this is basically two different, you have two different sermons coming at you. Even after Abe is victorious, He's believing in the one true God, confessing the gospel of this coming seed. And he's victorious. And he just gets out of church on Sunday, and then he hears this, give me the souls, but take the goods for yourself. This is like the epitome of, I would say, a kind of satanic attack where everything is, this is the the temptation of the church at all times. Things are good. Look at all the cash. Look at it coming in. Why don't you why don't you compromise a little bit on doctrine? Why don't you compromise a little bit on confession? Let the good times roll. That's what it's all about. Um do what you got to do to stay on this high, this material goods sort of thing. Compromise give me the soul. Sell out what you have to sell out including individuals in order to keep the good times rolling. Give me the souls, but take the goods for yourself. Keep your eyes on fixed on the material goods, Abe, so this king of Sodom says, and let me worry about the souls. 
But Abram says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. This is like be gone Satan right here. You shall worship the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and him alone shall you serve. I will not, I mean, even unto death, right? Not forsake this confession. Think of the confirmation vows. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Okay, this would be the epitome of idolatry that, you know, the king of Sodom just takes all the credit for himself. See the church over there? It's all a sham. The reason that they are prosperous is because of us, because the world is, because we are the ones making them look good. That's all they have going for them. It's not God who has blessed them. It's us. Abe sees through this plan. It's not even his to grant all these riches. This is totally what Satan does in the temptation of our Lord. I'll give you all these things. All the kingdoms of the world, everything that's out there. And the Lord and our Lord Jesus says, No. Uh be gone. And this is the one who already has all authority in heaven and earth. Abe knows that with God the most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that in him is all the riches. It's not even up to the king of Sodom to grant this stuff. And just like it's not for Satan to grant all the kingdoms of this world, so also Abe sees through this, and he refuses to cave on this. He refuses to, in the in the love of material goods, end up losing both body and soul. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so he says, I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten, the share of the men who went with me, let Honor, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So, I mean, at the one on the one hand, it's don't fall into the trap of this world when it offers you ways to get rich, to divert your attention to the material stuff as opposed to what's good for souls. Again, give me the souls, but take the goods for yourself. And yet at the same time, a laborer deserves his wages. It's not the church's business to just disentangle ourselves so much from I mean we got to live in this world we got to pay taxes give to Caesar what is Caesar and the laborer deserves his wages and so Abe here this is just a great setup to to the king of Sodom give to laborers their wages what what was due they got to eat they got to work and this is exactly how Paul speaks of the ministry we got to give I mean it's oh well you're preaching the gospel so I mean no paycheck or whatever no take care of what needs to be taken care of for body, material goods, home, meat, drink, you know, wife, children, these sorts of things. But when it comes to the souls, this world has nothing to offer as far as this life, forgiveness, life, and salvation that, that comes in Christ alone. And you see here in this in this. I don't know, Melchizedek in the in the author maybe you've heard of this in the book of Hebrews Melchizedek does this sound familiar Melchizedek is this is a beautiful picture of how our high priest Christ Jesus continues to serve his people his church his chosen ones in the midst of this the worldly temptations that continue to come our way keep your eyes fixed on what's strengthens in body and soul, bread and wine, body and blood, 
the blessings that you get in the particular Jerusalem located at all those places that give out these gifts so that we have an inheritance in the heavenly Jerusalem that will not end. That's our great uh, Melchizedek, our great high priest, Christ Jesus. And this is just a beautiful picture of how that how that continues to be true in the Christian church of all times and places. Great stuff. Hey, after this, we'll talk about God's covenant with Abram. What's a, what's a covenant and what's this all about? And isn't there more to say about the covenant? I didn't he already have a covenant and so on yet. But more to say here. That's chapter 15, and that's next time. Hey, tune in. Uh, tell your family and friends about this so that they too can learn more about God's Word with us. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian German, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.